Welcome to Breaking Bad News, Apron Food PR's podcast about food brands, recalls, withdrawals, alerts and issues, and the way they're treated in the press and on social media. Welcome to Breaking Bad News. This is your podcast for all things that are interesting in issues management, crisis management associated with food are discussed and cussed. It's great to have you all here for this episode, and it is a very special episode, actually. As you know, my colleague Jenny typically joins me for Breaking Bad News podcast. Jenny's been on parental leave and continues to be a parent. For some reason, that's a priority for her. However, I have pulled a rabbit out of the hat for you today. I've got my friend Bill Coletti, who is a crisis communication expert. Bill and I have our agency owners together. We get together every once in a while and uh, talk about how dreadful it is to own an agency. Then by the time the conversation's over, we look at each other and say, isn't it cool that we own agencies? (laughs) So, Bill, welcome to Breaking Bad News. Jeff, it is awesome to be here. I'm so excited you've got a podcast. Han has had so many exciting innovations to share, and now this is just one more venue you're sharing all your cool stuff. So this Gosh. is awesome. Yeah, and to have you here is like a celebrity because <laughs> you're just, uh, you, you've been on dozens of podcasts already this year. Yeah, we've had a busy year talking podcasts, talking about leadership, how, how leaders show up in a crisis and how they sort of their sort of their inside and their outside, and then a little bit of crisis tactics. And so uh, happy to do both sides, both the leadership side as well as the tactical side. Yeah, and Bill, the reason I wanted you to come is because I wanted to talk about your book, Critical Moments. Ask you some questions about that. I think it'd be cool for our listeners to understand what it is, the principles that you talk about in Critical Moments, what brought you to those ideas, and then maybe we'll have a little fun uh, throwing a case study or two around. I've got one for us. There was uh, an issue in the UK with a, a restaurant called Byron Burgers. And so we might uh, have a little bit of time to cuss and discuss about that one. But let's get back on to critical moments and to you. I want to start just by helping people understand how you get to be a crisis communications expert in the first place. So can you talk a little bit about your background? How did you, what got you to now? Sure, sure. So grew up in Florida, St. Petersburg, Florida. Early on in my career, some of my first jobs were running political campaigns. And so I ran campaigns, first job, um, and did it while I was in college and then active immediately thereafter college. And so as a lot of people know, campaigns are about creating crisis for the other guy and or fending off the crisis that you have been created for you. (laughs) And so you're kind of careening from guardrail to guardrail, crisis to crisis. And so... Did that for a long part of my career, and then you know about 13 years ago, four, really about 17 years ago, switched to do those same skill sets of politics into a corporate context, and so switched. Right, and is that when you joined the agency world? That's when we joined the agency world. We were the firm called Public Strategies, based here in Austin, but I was living in Florida at the time. Yep, and we were in you know sort of the early innovators of issues management, public affairs firm way back when, and so take those same political skill sets and apply them into corporations. Right, yeah. I I remember Public Strategies being known for that, the first firm that really you um, cross-pollinated campaign style or political campaign style techniques into corporate brand techniques. And that was a really interesting innovation. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's it's been a a great 
learning grounds being doing politics is an awesome place uh to to learn the skill sets of crisis and then perfected that over the past 13 years or so and then the past five uh been at kith uh, started our own firm because uh, we thought we could do it a little bit of a different way mm -hmm. and that's where the book came from and that's sort of been that innovation journey and how you and i got connected uh, oh so many years ago of course that happened too at the time when public strategies got acquired by Hill and Knowlton. Mm -hmm. And now it's, is it Hill and Knowlton Strategies now? Hill and Knowlton Strategies now and Public Strategies is is uh, as a conflict firm and kind of a little bit of a, of a um, shell of its former self. That shop still exists and it may be one of those where um, clients get funneled to if Hill and Knowlton has a conflict, a conflict or something like that. But I think it's even less and less of that nowadays, yeah, unfortunately. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. But Kith is going strong. Yeah, firm is doing terrific. We've had a great year. We've had some really sort of high profile stuff that's been kind of in the papers. A couple have been kept out of the papers. Well so, done. Uh, yeah. Which is uh which is, you know, great for clients and bad for marketing. Uh but it, yeah, it's been a terrific, terrific year. And we've really gotten really precise about what we do and, and how we articulate what we do. That's so important as we talk in agency the world and agency language about the importance of being really narrowly positioned, positioned as an expert. You certainly are that. And I think the last time you and I got to chat, you were talking uh, about some of your work with Cargill. Mm -hmm. And that gets us to the center of the conversation in the audience here is that you really do have a lot of cross-connect crisis com with food and food industry. Yeah, we do. We do. We, we back to that positioning point is that, you know, one of the things I've always envied about you and the way you've set up your firm is that sort of crystal clear laser focus on both uh, the marketplace and the discipline, which some of our gurus sort of right. talk about that. That's right. But that but that really focused in on food. We um, we have done that, tried that. Cargill has been a great client. We've had some success in food and agriculture. Great brand. Amazing. Great brand. Um, you know, but but really our greatest success is just being best in class at crisis. We, we have really struggled. Um, we've got discipline down, but really fine-tuning marketplace. And as we look at clients over the past year, it's it's been, you know, ranging from higher education to high net worth individuals to food and ag to aviation. So we've kind of been all over the place. Yeah, it's actually perfectly perfectly aligned with a horizontal position because you can use your model mm -hmm. and move across any industry. The model is the model is the model. Absolutely. Yeah, my yeah. expertise is my expertise is the public. It is not. I'm never going to be, even in an industry that we spend a lot of time in, I'm never going to be an expert in that industry more so than the leadership of that firm is. Of course. And so I'm, I'm really, really overt about that, is that it is, it is not my role to be an expert in your industry. It is my role to be an expert in getting your message out to the public that's, that feels misaligned right now. Yeah, precisely. And that gets us to critical moments. Let's um, dive into the book. I, uh, By the way, you're in first... First vision, uh, revision, mm -hmm. first edition, I should first say. First edition. And um, uh, you've had, what, 200 million copies purchased so yeah, far? I wish it was something <laughs> like that. I've stopped, stopped tracking. I've stopped keeping track. Either that's because it's so big or so small. Right. But no, it's it, the, the, the book, the purpose of the book was really a cathartic exercise to get the stuff out. Just get yeah, a bunch of ideas Externalizing out. the idea. Yeah, yeah, and so I was listening to an author's podcast 
a little bit ago, is that you know secretly every author writes the book for themselves. They say they write it for their audience and they write it for what have you, but it is really a chance to sort of work out your own stuff. And so the back to your point about first edition, a, a lot of my thinking has evolved, it hasn't fundamentally changed, but it's evolved and and we've sort of grown in the way we um, the way we've articulated things. So it's uh, we're well, ready for a second edition. I get that completely. You know, I've been working on Breaking Bad News for seven years. And we'll be out with it in January. But it feels like every time I turn a corner and I'm listening to another podcast or uh, the radio, I think, oh, I should put that in chapter six underneath subsection three. Like, ah, when does it stop? It doesn't ever stop. It doesn't ever stop. And nor should it stop. I mean, we should be always innovating and we should always be thinking. And so you could almost argue that while books have a measure of gravitas about them, and, and certainly I enjoy being called an author and whatnot, um, but it's almost a, uh, it, it's a it's a snapshot. It's a moment in time. Right. Podcasts, blogging, the new innovations, are, are, that's where people are really keeping up with the cutting edge because stuff's just changing so fast. It is. It's very fast. And, yeah. But the the centerpiece, the, the theory mm-hmm. that you present in critical moments still holds solid. The, yep. the core is solid. So let's dive into the middle of it. Absolutely. Let's, uh, we'll start just by defining... What's a critical moment? Yeah. When you, I think about crisis, I'm thinking uh, sirens are blaring and uh, people are running frenetically around like lunatics. But it feels like as I read critical moments, you have a different sense. You have a distinction between um, crises and critical moments. Absolutely. So I think of it in three. I didn't write about one, but but there's just normal business hassles. There, there, Things go wrong in business where the public and or represented by the media makes a phone call and needs a clarification. People call us about that. That's not a crisis. That is, that is someone misunderstanding what you've done. Answer it and move on and, and everybody will move on. So I don't really address that. But a lot of the calls, and I'm sure you get calls like that too. You're like, this is not a crisis. This may be the first time you've had to deal with it, but it's not really a crisis. Answer the question honestly and let's move on. Um, so, I, so that's one third that's kind of over there. Crisis to me are these singular moment in time events that organizations find themselves that have a relatively finite beginning and end. Okay, a crisis begins and a crisis ends. It could be sirens screaming, it could be something blowing up, it could be a question about a tactic that a company has taken that's really misunderstood. And that then becomes where we have to answer it. So to me, a crisis has a clear and distinctive beginning and end. It, it stops and it starts. Yeah. A critical moment is usually sort of initially a crisis, but it evolves into this long, slow-burning exercise that really begins to long-term impact your reputation. And so a crisis, I think, is that they come and go. Sometimes people pay attention. Maybe they impact your reputation. But this long tail of critical moments, because it's not just one singular event, it's a long tail, that's where I think the notion of a critical moment is distinctive from a crisis. If I'm reading you right, then, it means that reputation is the result or maybe it's made up of critical moments. Absolutely. So I've got a couple of definitions that I use of reputation. reputation, Yeah, yeah. reputation. So there's three sort of classical definitions. There's the um, Oxford Handbook definition of reputation. And so this is the Oxford, uh, I think 2014, a guy named Mike Barnett wrote the 
the Oxford Handbook on Corporate Reputation. And basically what it is, it is the sum of the public's experience on the way corporations act financially, socially, and ethically. Right, so it's the sum of our observation. Some of the parts. Some of the parts. Some of our observation of those three things, or what they look at, you know, socially, financially, and ethically. Uh, that's good. That's classic. That's there. Makes sense. You've got Seth Godin that says your reputation is the expectation of the next thing you're going to do, say, or produce. Okay. Reputation is expectation. And so I talk about it in the context of next expectation. So to coin a, you know, a, a firm, a, a word that we all in agencies like to do. So mm -hmm. next expectations. It is, if I were to say two companies, if I were to say Starbucks and Walmart, you immediately begin processing your expectations of what they are going to do next. Okay. Now, Walmart is an increasingly poor example of that because they're doing some really fabulous things. They do. Walmart is doing uh, some great, great things. Surprising things. You know, um, they're coming out right now, for example, with a pretty affirmative stance on guns. Absolutely. Which is, that's been a major revenue source for them. A little counterintuitive. There it is. But Absolutely. that's to your point. They, Absolutely. So it, so so the, the Seth Godin example, and I know you're a fan of his, is that that is the expectation of what of the next thing you're going to say, do, or produce. Yeah, uh, that's there. And so yeah. when I say Walmart, again, they're changing they're changing this narrative. You would be low cost, maybe not treat their employees very well and maybe kind of a dirty store. Those are kind of an experience or a reputation and and use a lot of energy to, to, to light those very expensive stores that are there. Right. They are changing that. But that is my next expectation of them. Yes. My next expectation of Starbucks is something completely different. If they make a mistake, they're going to fess up, fix it, move on. They're going to innovate with new ideas and new solutions. They're going to send their employees to Arizona State to get online bachelor's degrees, and they're going to do a lot of amazing things. So it's this general perception from of what Godin says of your expectation of what people are going to do next. All right, And so you take that to a personal level, is that we've been friends and colleagues, and when you leave a meeting with me, I have a full expectation that you're going to send me the article that we talked about or mm -hmm. you're going to send me the thing. There are some people that you leave a meeting and you just have that expectation is that they're never going to follow up. And that's just their reputation. I know that guy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is just their reputation that's there. And then mine and one that I've coined and, and others have, have sort of sort of talked about a little bit is this notion of a company owns its brand, right? but the public owns its reputation. Yeah, it is an interesting um, head-scratcher for people who don't think deeply about this, but a company can't own its own reputation. That expectation is inside of the minds of others. Others. Absolutely. They yeah. are not necessarily customers. Right. So I may or may not have an affinity or a relationship with BP, the gas company, mm -hmm. oil and gas company, mm -hmm. uh, because it's not on my way home. Shell is on my way home or Exxon or whatever the case may be. Um, but I have a, so I'm not a customer. So brand attributes don't impact me. But because of Deepwater Horizon and the Gulf of Mexico, I have a perceived reputation of BP of what they're doing, which is why they've done a series of multi-million dollars of ads in the Gulf Coastal states talking about the what they're doing to get better and fix the problems that are there. Those are reputation plays. Those are not brand plays. Makes sense. Right, right, right. They are redefining themselves. And you might even characterize the, every ad placement or every run that they do as them trying to influence a critical moment. Absolutely. They're trying to remedy a, a, a problem, trying to change an expectation 
that people have of them. So yeah. absolutely, that's the tie-in back to this notion of critical moments. Makes sense. They're influencing that arc, the, mm -hmm. the narrative that is created for them. Yep. So that all of that definitional framework gives us an opportunity now to understand how um, critical moments are different from crises. Mm -hmm. You're actually communicating with brands and clients about reputation and having to coach them on almost, um, I like to use the phrase, speaking their future into being. Absolutely. How does that, um, you, well, you have a few methods yep. and inside of critical moments, you talk about those. Yeah. The levers, the reputation levers. Absolutely. Can you talk to us about that? So. It, it begins, I'll, I'll tell, you, just tell you a story if you don't mind, is, sure. is that, you know, I was, we had just finished a crisis, finished a crisis with a client. We'd sort of done a major press conference and we sort of made the announcement that we needed to announce and we were kind of in the tail and things were sort of trailing off. And the CEO and I kind of had a debriefing session and the CEO and I were talking about it. And she basically said, well, that sucked. Let's never do that again. And, <laughs> right. And, which is a very common reaction. I can agree. Yes. So that sucked. <laughs> Let's never do that again. And. She asked me, she said, so, so tell me more about reputation management. What do we do now that, this, that we are post this crisis or we're moving post? And I kept talking about this construct of reputation management. How are we gonna grow your reputation? How are we gonna increase your license to operate? How are we gonna grow your goodwill? I kept talking about a lot of these things and she says, I think I get it, but would really help me is if there was a model or a framework to understand what you mean by reputation management. And she said something like the four P's of marketing, price, product, place, promotion. And, sure. and I'm sure you and all your listeners are familiar with the four P's of marketing, price, product, place, promotion. It's a 1960s innovation. It was the start of the marketing mix by a guy named Borden is the guy who started it. And what it did is that it quantified and gave a framework to marketing, the new emerging discipline of marketing. Because prior to that, you know, when we were doing a lot of door-to-door -door sales, there wasn't a lot of TV advertising that was going on, the distinction between sales and marketing was really, really fuzzy. Mm. Price, product, place, promotion gave clarity to the industry of marketing, okay? Yep. Because what you could do with that model is you could appoint a vice president of each one of those Ps, a vice president of price, place, promotion, and product, and someone responsible for that. So with that insight, I flew home that night and jotted down what are the attributes of a reputation journey comparable to price, product, place, and promotion. And that sent me on this journey and then that ultimately became the four A's and the four A's of reputation management. And that is the model, that is the process um, that we use. It begins with awareness to assessment to authority, hard blue line, and then moves to action, uh, the four steps. Uh, there, that's an important uh, note, if you didn't uh, pick it up, but hard blue line is something that we should come back to. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, uh, the awareness part. Absolutely. Um, more theoretical. But Absolutely. when you move to action, you actually have to behave to the future that you have spoken. Absolutely. That has to be. So the, the four steps are, are this notion of awareness, and that's both self-awareness of the corporation. Who are we? What do we stand for? Mission and values. What do we believe in? And a little bit of looking at your competitor set. Mm -hmm. Just turn your head left and right, but also looking in yourself. So awareness. Assessment, which is actually where you go ask questions, where you do public opinion research, internal research on your employees, and you actually assess, what do you expect of me? You just ask people, what are your expectations of me? So that we can go back to that Godin definition and understand that. What do people expect us? What do they expect us to do next? And is it good or is it bad? From there, you go to authority. And authority, I've, I've 
people have commented is misplaced is that this should start with authority. And I think what authority is is executive buy-in. It is the buy-in from the senior leadership of your organization. It's also the authority to actually go tell stories, is that you give yourself the permission ah. to go do things, and that's what I mean by authority. So you build on those three. Until you've done those, the hard blue line is there. And Jeff, that's the, that's the consultant barrier, okay? Because we've had too many consultants in our career that say reputation management, let's just jump to action. Let's, here's a program. Do something. Do the thing. <laughs> and I think that's a misnomer. You cannot, yeah. just, it's much like you just, you can't introduce a new, uh, we've got some soda cans on the, on the table. You can't introduce a new drink unless you've gone through some sort of journey. You can't just throw it out to the marketplace right. that's there. There's got to be a thoughtful product development journey. Reputation needs to be thought about the same way. Yeah, it's I like hard. That. It's a great analogy. We're developing a product. We're developing a brand. We'd go through the same discipline. Developing a voice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And go through that same discipline. And, and one of my, the next phase of my career is this pet peeve that communications, communicators, are unfortunately not held to the same rigor as other disciplines within the organization. Marketing has models, marketing has discipline, and communicators, unfortunately, are inherently reactive, and the desire to do a reputation program after a crisis is a mistake. There is a program in a thoughtful way. I think it's my four A's model. Mm -hmm. is a very logical way to sort of pursue that. There are some restoration ideas, though, or restoration concepts that in the immediate aftermath of a crisis mm -hmm. um, that are different. I guess I would say that restoration is almost like the return to normal. Mm -hmm. Now we have to redefine a new normal. Mm -hmm. And the four A's are that new normal. Would Absolutely. That be fair? Begins with assessment. I think as yeah. you're going through that restoration phase, what are we restoring to? Right. First of all, and how bad is it really? Was this, this felt horrible as, as, the, as the CEO said, this sucked. Let's not do that again. <laughs> but it if we are true with our assessment and we're true with our self-awareness, it might not have been that bad, or maybe it's worse than we think. But if we just jump to restoration, which is another word for action, right. without being thoughtful, it's foolish money. It's a yeah, waste of time. Exactly. And I think your British Petroleum, the BP example, is a good one. They um, Let's just get it out of the way that they did a lot of stuff wrong in yes. that process. Yes, early. Um, and, but in the aftermath... I felt like they did find their voice, mm -hmm. and um, they've been pretty consistent with it. So they have I, been. I give them some credit. Absolutely give them credit for that. It took them a long time, and they took a lot of body blows and a couple of punches to the face along the way. <laughs> That's right. But, yeah, they did, they, did, they, they, they did not break the bad news. They, they didn't get the first steps right. Yeah, they, um, the thing that we're indebted forever to BP is the famous quote, I'd like my life back. I'd like my life it's back. In I'd every, rather be sailing on the Thames River. It's in every uh, crisis presentation now. I know. It is. <laughs> yes. Tony Hayward, uh, who was the former CEO, um, was said he'd rather have his life back and he'd rather be sailing in the Thames River. I think he was sailing about the next week, wasn't he? Was. he? he was. <laughs> Very happily, probably. Well, it's interesting as we think about these things because um, in my mind, they are exceptionally human. Mm -hmm. These are um, translated from the individual to the masses, to the brands. It's all um, just a matter of scale, but the, the constituent components feel very um, close to individual uh, feelings, emotions, perceptions. It's, it's just almost like you've taken a particular person and unpacked that person 
into a big giant brand. Do you, uh, do you have that uh, same sort of feel? Perfect. An example of your intellectual curiosity. So I love that. So that's, that's perfect, Jeff. So um, a story I tell about that is that I was living overseas and decided to run a marathon. And I was incredibly deliberate. I needed to lose some weight. I obviously needed to run. And I had to sort of do this process. So I went on this journey of kind of awareness. What's the race I'm going to run? Can I really run it? Yep. Do I really have the discipline to do that? Assessment. I went and I checked out a doctor. I found a trainer and things like that. Then I sort of asked for the authority. Can I really take the time away from my partner to go do this? A Marine buddy of mine who thought he was pretty fit jumped to action. He said, no, shoot, I'm just going to be able to run this I in 10 days. That. I can do that. Yeah. I finished. He didn't. And so you're absolutely right. Any sort of personal transformation, this fits, this model fits. It was never my intent, but the more I've been talking to talk, thoughtful people, that's what they've come up with. Yeah, they found I, that parallel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, um, and I love that word too, transformation. We are, you're in the transformation business. Absolutely. Uh, which is a really intriguing aspect of the whole domain of crisis communication, very rarely talked about. Even by me, you know, in Breaking Bad News, I'm talking about, here's how you fight a fire. Right. And that's it. Yeah. The restoration and transformation component, well, in my model, I'm just going to put uh, see critical moments yeah. <laughs> right so, here. <laughs> so I'm curious your reaction to this mindset on that, is that you and I, for the most part, our role in a crisis yep. is to disrupt the disruption. There is a disruption, critical moment crisis. There is a disruption. Mm -hmm. They call an outside expert who can help disrupt that. Stop the pain, put a Band-Aid on it, be the firefighter, whatever the metaphor is. Right. Disrupt the disruption. I, as a firm, have sold disruption management or, or the ability to disrupt very successfully. And we've had a great successful firm. And I then leave. What I... I'm now much more interested in is that how can I not sell disruption, but how can I sell transformation? Yes. How can I take a client perhaps pre-crisis or post-crisis and help them fundamentally transform into a different and better organization so that we leave them not, not bleeding on the sidewalk, but actually transformed and better? How can we transform that? So that's the future of our firm. That's and cool. And that's what we're trying to work that's on. That's cool. And the corollary to that is that if you think about disruption silicon valley is rich in disruptive vocabulary everybody wants to talk about disruption that's there and the mm -hmm. facebook um, mantra is move fast and break things all right, right. And so i was listening to this commentator talking about this is that steve um, uh, zuckerberg not zuckerberg mark zuckerberg mark zuckerberg, yeah. mark zuckerberg yeah. travels with about a 50 to 70 person security entourage as he moves around mm -hmm because he's moved fast and broke things and probably pissed off a lot of people <laughs> along say, the way. I think he's gotten pretty good at that. Warren Buffett envisions to transform industries, transform marketplaces. At Berkshire Hathaway, that's what they want to do. They're doing it in real estate and insurance and lots of different art, lots of different places. He travels with nobody, he jumps into an Uber and he goes to his next event. And so he is selling transformation Zuckerberg is selling disruption. Gotcha. I want to be a transformer. I'm over kind of disrupting the disruption because I think that future is that we need to create reputation resilient organizations, not people with better, faster band-aids. 
in stopping the crisis. And I, I don't think you look that good in a hoodie either. <laughs> Much better in a, more of a Warren Buffett look. Absolutely. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Well said. Well said. The, the um, Is this then the uh, fixation on disruption versus transformation the thing that brands get wrong the most? They're so... Um, they're so I was thinking about this, the show on TV, it's called Scandal. Mm -hmm. uh, you go to Kerry Washington, I can't remember her character's name, she's the fixer, right. just fix it. Right. And that's fiction, but CEOs still believe that. There's just, an element of truth to that. Just give me one of those, Absolutely. just fix it. And this. we've done that, and we've had success with clients moving them from A to B, and, and, that's, and, and some people really value that. It's a deal. It's yeah, a deal it's a that people value it. It's a, it's an opportunity, but it but it is um, what I found in in true introspection is that those clients kept calling back six weeks, six months, six years later, because they did it again, or something like it. They did uh, it again, yeah. and if they had a product that failed, or had a product that got recalled, or whatever the case may be, and the market didn't accept it they wouldn't keep doing it over and over again. So their product development journey got transformed. Right. Why don't we do that with what we do here? Why don't we do that with reputation and risk and crisis? Why don't we transform organizations? And so we're now talking about the four A's and this model of transformation as opposed to building a better mousetrap of simply being a better crisis communicator. We can do better is that we can actually meet the board of directors where they are. They don't want just better tactics, they want better strategies. That's what boards demand. Can you map critical moments into the future? Can you yeah. um, create a narrative arc that doesn't exist and, and help clients understand, look, you can use the forays and here's where it's gonna take you. I'm, um, you might, I'm kind of uh, role playing you up in the front of a conference room and said, I can see your future this is the kind of company you could be. Mm -hmm. And this, you're actually trying to help them grapple with the words and ideas that could be the future. Yeah. Do you find that to be uh, true? Absolutely, it's because I think when you get to that action, if you've gone through these four steps, action in a reputation context is most impacted by CEO voice and CEO presence. All right, there, there are lots of other attributes, but it is primarily driven by CEO voice and CEO presence. And a CEO that goes on this journey and gets that CEO storytelling, whether it is about purpose, which is kind of the cause celeb that oh, everybody's sure. talking about now, yeah. whatever it is, I'm agnostic to the, to the it, but having and finding that voice is a direct predictor of the ability to be resilient in a crisis, to have a re creative reservoir of goodwill and maintain your license to operate. So I absolutely believe that. And using that CEO strategic story voice that's there is absolutely a predictor of what the future would look like. Marry that up with the, the next thing I wanna talk about is, is the notion of understanding risk. We can talk about risk and organizations should know what those risks are. You marry that with good tactics and a CEO voice, that's a recipe for a strong reputation. Well, let's talk a little bit about risk because I think it's in, the, uh, in your pyramid model in the assessment mm -hmm. section, mm -hmm. you do have a risk um, a calculator or framework. a framework? framework. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, can you talk to us about that and how that yeah. Uh, works? Yeah. So, you know, in the 
2008, 2009, um, the notion of risk and risk management was significantly influenced by the economic downturn that we had. We had some banks that go bad, and there were bad risk controls that were in place. So the scholarship and the thought about risk management kind of changed. One of the things that came out of that is that how do organizations do a better job of categorizing risk? And where we've taken it is that we think that organizations can categorize risk in one of three ways. You have strategic risks, so I'll do it in a food and agriculture context. Mm -hmm. You have strategic risks. We meant to use this additive in our product. That was in a strategic decision that we meant to do. And so it's something, so what a strategic risk is, is something undertaken for superior economic value. You do it for a strategic reason. Preventable risks are things you should have zero tolerance for. A hamburger patty maker should not and cannot have metal shavings in the burger. And through technology and rules and processes, it is possible to never have metal shavings in your hamburger. And that is the standard. The standard should be zero tolerance. So if strategic risk is done for superior economic benefit, preventable risk is done are things that are risks that have zero benefit to the organization and should be and should be eliminated. Yeah, it makes no sense to say, in fact, you use uh, Bluebell mm -hmm. and the 2015 Listeria yep. outbreak as an example. Bluebell, let's imagine they didn't say, it's okay not to clean those machines because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt that they didn't say that, mm -hmm. but still that preventable risk wasn't um, fully guarded from. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. And through appropriate rules, procedures, and technology, could have been. They could have prevented. They could have prevented it. They could have prevented it. Yeah, gotcha. And then you have external risks. So strategic risk, preventable, preventable, and then external. External are issues like force majeure, completely outside of your control. Each one of those risks creates a messaging opportunity and a necessity on, and, a, and, a, and a paradigm on how to communicate. So strategic risk we intended to use this additive. We intended to change this procedure. We intended to lay off this workforce. Requires messaging, not of an apology. It requires messaging that says explain and defend. We have, yes. we, so the, the apology is, I'm sorry we didn't do a good enough job explaining this, but here's why we did it. Okay, so a strategic risk, if well thought out, and you're doing it and just hope you don't get caught, that's a bad strategy. It creates a messaging paradigm of where you need to explain and defend. Preventable risk, zero tolerance, apologize and fix it. That is your messaging architecture. Right. We're sorry, and we're going to fix it. Shouldn't be metal shavings in the hamburgers, and we're going to take them out, and we're going to never let it happen again. External, the message strategy is that more than likely, you are in the herd of other people. And so you are apologizing for the disruption, but it wasn't your fault. You didn't cause the disruption. So it creates a messaging model of where you talk about how we're going to fix it, how we're going to back to normal, and that you're in a herd of other people impacted by it as well. So strategic, preventable, and external risks all create a different messaging framework. Yeah, and in uh, the external component, there are a number of techniques and tactics that you can use, including um, best practices in the industry. Absolutely. Provide, provide a... Um, this is a way that it's done. This is what is normal. And back to the earlier conversation, this is what is expected. Well, it turns out that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. And so you have to work your way down through that conversation. And that, we're not big fans of crisis plans, okay? No. If you want a crisis plan for external, that's great. 
write a plan, procedures, policies. Where yeah. where do we find the water bottles if there's a hurricane? You know, where do we find the, the emergency procedure? That's there. We'd rather people get much more aligned around risk and much more aligned around mission and values and chain of command because that's much more important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Bill, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to put a recent case in front of you. And we'll talk less about the crisis itself and more about the idea of restoration mm -hmm. and then the new normal that Absolutely. we go to. Great. All right. This is going to be fun, although it's kind of a tra it is a tragedy, but that's what we do on Breaking Bad News. We're going we're gonna to cover through this and help our listeners understand there is a methodology not only to the, the present, but also the future. Good. We'll be back in just a minute. This episode of Breaking Bad News is sponsored by no one, because no brands want to be associated with this topic. And can you blame them? The team from Apron Food PR, however, is proud to step into the vacuum. You can learn more about Apron Food PR's brand protection and promotion work by visiting apronfoodpr.com. Welcome back to Breaking Bad News. My special guest, Bill Coletti, is here. Bill is the CEO of Kith, and Kith is more than a crisis communication agency. What we've been talking about, Bill, is you're really in the reputation transformation business. This is a very unique space to occupy inside of the general world of crisis communication. We, we walked down through a number of principles and ideas in the first half of our conversation, and now I want to put some of those to use and apply them to a case that um, I found just recently. This happened back on the 13th of September. Mm. Over in um, the UK, it was in London, there is a hamburger chain, restaurant chain. I think they have 34 stores, uh, but it's called Byron Hamburger. And Byron is fairly popular they um, were hosting one day a teenager. This teenager happened to have a pretty severe food allergy um, on dairy. He couldn't tolerate dairy. The teenager goes into the, his name is Owen. Owen goes in the restaurant celebrating his birthday with his friends. And he asks the server, hey, I've got a food allergy. Um, is there any dairy in your products or in your burgers? And this is a pretty special burger. I think it was uh, co it's coated in buttermilk, as it turns out. Mm -hmm. Server says, no, no problem at all. And on the menu, there is no alert that um, this product contains dairy. Mm -hmm. Here is, um, we were talking a little bit about external uh, challenges. In the best practices of UK food safety, the restaurant is not required to alert patrons that their products contain certain uh, foods. For example, peanuts mm -hmm. or, in this case, dairy. Well, the sad story, of course, here is that Owen um, ate his buttermilk-coated chicken sandwich, and just an hour later, the, um, he died. Mm -hmm. This was He had a severe allergic reaction, went into anaphylactic shock, he is uh, now being used, uh, this situation is being used as a poster child mm -hmm. for why food safety labeling in the UK needs to change. But what I wanted to talk to you about is not the specifics of 
the case itself, but what was said afterward by the CEO of Byron. Mm -hmm. And let me read it because it was a short statement that to me has all kinds of really interesting and intriguing dimensions to it. Be great to uh, view this through the critical moments conversation. First, it said, I'd like to extend both Byron's, uh, I would like to extend both Byron's and my deepest condolences to Owen's family and his many friends. We take allergies extremely seriously and have a robust procedures in place. Although those procedures were in line with all the rules and guidelines, and we train our staff to respond in the right way, it's a matter of great regret and sadness that our high standards of communicating with our customers were not met during Owen's visit. We believe that Byron always did its best to meet our responsibilities, but we know that this will be of no comfort to Owen's family. We've heard what the coroner said about the need to communicate about allergies. It's clear that the current rules and requirements are not enough, and the industry needs to do more, more to help support customers with allergies and more to raise awareness about the risk of allergies. We will make it our priority to work with our colleagues across the restaurant industry to ensure that standards and levels of awareness are improved. That's the statement from the Byron CEO. If you look at it through the lens of breaking bad news, I would tear that into about a dozen different pieces and, and analyze it in an interesting way. But how do you look at it in the through the lens of critical moments? Yeah. First of all, I mean, we can just ask ourselves, did Byron and the CEO um, fulfill their obligation from a communication standpoint in the aftermath of this tragedy? Yeah. So I think this is a good statement. I, I do not have a major objection to this statement. It leads with empathy. Uh, it, it fills in the blanks and tells the story about what exactly happened from their perspective. And then it sets, perhaps it could be a little bit more, but it sets a journey and a path forward on what they're going to do to try to change things. It's not crystal clear. They didn't appoint a, a blue ribbon commission, blue ribbon commission. Or, or what have you, yeah, but, yeah. but there is an articulation in that third or fourth or fifth or sixth paragraph down there, um, the sentence that talks about what they're going to do moving forward. The industry needs to do this and we are going to support the industry in doing that. And so I think from a communication standpoint and stopping, disrupting the disruption that they've done, mm -hmm. I think they have done a good job of doing that. It is a tragedy that this young person died, um, no doubt. Um, and it is the, so the, the messaging, in my opinion, works. Um, and I think that, that they need to now continue to talk about this story to those that matter most to them, the stakeholders that really matter. But I think from a public-facing articulation, I think it's a really a, a strong message. Oh, there's so many things to talk about in this. It's yeah. really interesting. It's great. I happen to agree with most of what you said. I like the... Um, statement and we got to give the CEO some credit here. This comes out just maybe an hour or two yes. after the event. So it's a pretty well articulated message Tom's in a team short was ready. amount of time. Somebody was ready, which yeah. is good. It feels uh, it feels pretty well done in that respect. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested in a dozen other things, but it's more important to me that we think about this in the context of critical moments. Now, if you are in the Byron conference room, Bill, um, what is the roadmap of critical moments that they have ahead of them that they might use this situation as to, to catalyze forward? Yeah, it's a great conversation. So I think that it, it begins in that lower, lower levels of sort of 
awareness and assessment. Yeah. They seem to be pretty self-aware. They, they get it that something horrible happened to this young man and they get it that they were at the center of it. So I think from an awareness standpoint, they relatively get it. Now, I, I, you can't, you can only glean so much, but I've seen a lot worse uh, statements than this. So I think they get it. I think yes. the next thing they need to do is they need to do some research. They need to go ask some stakeholders, where do you think about this? Read the statement and get some feedback and ask legitimately, what do you expect us to do next? And yes. to work with regulators and legislators and community leaders. What is your expectation of what, what we is your do expectation? Next? That is great. Yes. And so that's sort of that next step. And then this notion of authority is that the CEO needs to be challenged. If they expect us to do X, can we do X? And, and what does it mean that we're going to support changes or we want to bring about change in the industry or the industry should do this? Are we going to testify, uh, you know, at Parliament to talk about that? Are we going to write a, a white paper? to talk about how to improve these best practices. That's all of those next steps. If we're just going to issue another statement and say rah-rah from the sideline, that's fine, but that's probably not going to meet people's expectations right. um, that's there. They should then stop and then proceed to action once it's, they've gone through those logical steps. They have to make a decision. Are they going to lead on this issue yeah. and become the, the banner carrier? as it seems to lay out in here that they are willing to do, mm -hmm. or are they gonna join others and uh, muddle along? Hard to tell. And that's why I think that blue line is so critical. Yeah. Because I can imagine the communications team meeting where some well-intentioned person says, we need to set up the Owen Scholarship Fund and every year award a high school senior a thousand burgers for life or whatever right. that's there. and just jump to that action. And so that sounds lovely. I like that nice idea. idea. Nice, nice idea. Sentiment. But it reminds everybody every 365th day that they killed a kid in 2019. Right. I'm not sure that's a good idea. But if so, if they go through a journey of reflection of who are we, what do people expect of us, and are we willing to go on this authority journey long term, you might say, well, let's not do that because that's going to remind everybody of all this, this horrible thing that happened in 2019. Or the decision could be made, you know, what we should do is do something right for his family and we should do it privately. And, and that's all that we do in that sort of immediate reaction context. But what we are going to do is we are going to put our food safety scientists and going to let them work with the regulatory body to come up with some meaningful reforms that works for everybody in the industry. And we're going to put our thumb on that scale and working with our, our colleagues that don't want to come along with us in the food industry, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to tell that to regulators and tell that to legislators because the public will probably forget about this over time. Right. But legislators, regulators, and policymakers won't. And they want to see that there is action long term. And for it to be quality, you need to have gone through this 4A journey. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's really interesting to imagine what's going on in the head of the Byron leadership team here because. There's some contradictory ideas inside of the statement. Um, first, they claim to have high standards mm -hmm. of communicating with their customers, and yet they didn't. So they have to address that. Absolutely. Um, they could also do things like, we're taking buttermilk off the menu. Mm -hmm. Make some immediate uh, changes. But in the transformation business, we've got to talk systemically. Absolutely. And that's really the trick, is to move from the catalyzing moment of a singular event into a transformative critical moments pathway it sometimes is a leap absolutely and most crises when you look at, even at this one 
they very, very rarely are singular events. There, is, there were systemic failures in this Byron example. The, uh, the, the newspaper article seems to put a lot of blame on the server to say, no, 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 there's no milk in that product. Right. That goes back to training. That goes back to should there have been something posted at the, at the store level that's there? Should the regulator and the government have been required to something? So there were systemic failures. It wasn't a, another glib teenager, I'm assuming in a fast food industry, another teenager making yep. a mistake, is that had to do a lot to their training. So you're right, there is some contradiction there, but there's also room for me as the listener to empathize because, okay, they get it. They, they do have high standards articulated. They didn't live up to it, and they say they didn't live up to it. I think you've made a really nice point there, Bill. The, that they get it is important. And I'll give the CEO of Byron credit for that. He was quite empathetic in this. And it tells me that they're not tone deaf. Mm -hmm. They have some work to do, and they can do that. The degree to which they'll take it from incident response into a transform transformative moment for them mm -hmm. remains to be seen, but that's why they need to call you, right? <laughs> I'm sure they've got some great counsel uh, that's talking to them about that. And it's obvious that someone, a thinker, helped them write this because this is, this is really well done. Um, and, and so I think that uh, you're right, and that's that they've stopped the bleeding. They've stopped right. the bleeding in the crisis. They've disrupted the disruption, and they can just go back to selling burgers or they can really fundamentally change their organization. Cargill went through this, through oh. Jack through Jack in the Box. And right. If you remember Jack in the That's Box right. so many years ago. The tragic difference is that the young woman did not die, um, is that she was uh, significantly impacted, and I believe she's paralyzed for the rest of her life. And so um, significant impact, but, and, but Cargill continues to do the right thing by her and will always continue to do the right thing by her. And that sort of situation has gone by the wayside, but there was, you know, I think it was salmonella, uh, or some, some toxin That's, that yes, was there, I, I believe that, that was. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, this happens, this is a, you know, food is a risky business that's there. Um, but having policies and procedures in place, it's a preventable risk that they can be eliminated. Uh, but I, I do think Byron's is on the is on the right path. Initially, two weeks out, uh, they seem to be on the right path. Great to yeah, talk about this in a year. It feels like what, it will come happened. back to it. See yeah. what happened. You know, it does remind me though, as we compare and contrast to Chipotle, for example. Yeah. Chipotle had a whole series, years of listeria, E. coli, one thing after another after another. They um, were committed to this singular idea of we're going to set a higher standard. We're going to set a higher standard. And yet they kept violating their own standard. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if there's a critical moment path for Chipotle um, or if they simply have to just keep trying to do better. Yeah. Back to the point you said earlier, they didn't get it from that, those repeated incidents, those repeated crises that became a critical moment for that organization where they had two stand downs for safety, where yes. they had all the employees put their pencils down and, and or put their tongs down mm -hmm. and really focus on safety. They had to do that twice, which is incredibly expensive to try to do. Oh, and that, by the way, led the headlines of the day, Chipotle is closed. Right. It sounded like the company was out of business. Absolutely. Ridiculously bad headlines. Yeah, really, really bad. Yeah. So, um, Reputation is formed over people's experience over the long term. And they've reinforced that. I think about it when I drive by a Chipotle uh, and, and to go there. I also think about kind of the, just the hubris um, as an insider that I sort of watched them communicate. And, I, and I, they, that doesn't share my personal values. 
Um, right. I don't know if anybody else is thinking about it in that context. But they're, to your point, I don't think there's any magic silver bullet that they can do. They're probably really clean. They probably have a lot of really good food safety procedures in place right now. They probably are doing a lot of the right things. Um, and they just need to keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it over, to, over the long term to reinforce um, and to overcome, to transform the negative disruption that they had. What's always cycled through my head in that particular brand is, did they overpromise? Yeah. And maybe it is true that um, you made the point earlier, hey, food has inherent risks uh, from a business standpoint. Maybe we can't make those kinds of brand promises and live up to them. And part of the critical moment path for them is to uh, own or embrace the reality of what it means to be a quick serve restaurant, how you have to um, strive to to uh, serve delicious food that's very fresh. But but uh, let's be real, it can't be right out of the you can't pull it out of the field and put it on the serving platter in and ha- not have risk to the consumer. Right, and I think that we can go a lot deep on. I mean, very deep on this. And I, I don't know if the exact messaging from Chipotle, but I'm pretty confident they wanted to disrupt the QSR industry. Correct. They wanted to disrupt quick serve and do exactly what you just said. They wanted to be farm to table. They wanted to be fast and fresh. But there is a reason why some burgers or proteins are frozen and have microbial interventions. Mm-hmm. And so maybe they don't want to disrupt, which leads to this negative implication that they've had to go through. Maybe they should have transformed and tried to bring the industry along with them, changing things along the way over the long term. Doesn't you know create a really rapid quarterly growth that they had for a oh, number of years? Right, and that disruption was, works. That was but right. But now they they are caught in sort of that disruption transformation vice. Uh, that's there. Um, and so it's something, it's an interesting perspective. I'm pretty sure they use disruptive vocabulary um, the way they wanted to No question the about it. And you, uh, you can even remember the really provocative, award-winning commercials. They were motion graphic animation with a scarecrow mm-hmm. um, coming from the farm. And it was, uh, they were sentimental and touching and yet positioned the brand almost in an untenable situation, right. s- untenable position. That everybody else was wrong. And, and so you look at a McDonald's or you look at, at, a, at a Whataburger, you look at other some really high quality producers, they might have these challenges, but they don't impact them the way this way. Right. Because they right. never aspire to fundamentally disrupt the marketplace. They're trying to transform it by getting better, by sitting on committees, by working and doing the hard work that's there, not trying to blow up the whole place. I think that that's a really fantastic example. If we go back to your four A's model, there's a moment where authority has to step back and reflect, can we keep this promise? Yes. And can we meet the expectation that we're setting for ourselves and others will come to expect? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fascinating, I get, now we're practicing here with your model and boy, it's so obvious now how it can work in the conversation and all these dimensions. Well, it all came up with a fabulous female CEO that said, I don't get it. And it forced me to do that clear articulation like the, the four Ps uh, in order to do that. So it's great validation um, in that clients are going on this journey and are actually doing action that's meaningful, not um, that's superficial. Um, we don't we, we get where companies are getting punished for superficial action. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a whole new it's a whole new level of belief driven buying 
that is creating that anvil that they're getting smashed against. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And they need to and they need to own it, not bemoan it, but they need to own it because yeah. it's true and it's real um, and not say, oh, people are expecting too much of us nowadays. No, they are expecting too much of you because you've taken on a huge responsibility. Whatever your good or service is that's there, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a big expectation, which Absolutely. is leadership privilege. It is a privilege to be able to serve whatever market you're serving, and companies need to think about it that way. That makes a lot of sense. Bill, if you had one big takeaway from the book, would that be it, that you are, you are privileged to be able to serve a market, therefore you must do it well and set an expectation for yourself that others can believe in. Is that sort of your, that's your, the bottom line when you give speeches all over the place? It, it, and it is, it is, um, and it's, a, it's a, a great articulation. I think the other articulation I, I use is that you, you don't have to be a victim. You know, companies don't have to be victims of these circumstances. There are systems and models. Pick a department within any organization. HR, legal, administrative, janitorial, pick a department. There are systems and procedures. Drucker has probably written a book about the model that they should have, that they should undertake or some um, strategist. Is that reputation and crisis response should be no different. And that, so don't be a victim. There's something you can do about it. Get reputation resilient, understand risk, understand crisis response, and that's your best remedy on that. And that organizations, you know, need to understand it's not just about the brand, but it's about this notion of the public owning their reputation. That makes a lot of sense. Bill, where can people find you? Where do they, where can they find boxes and boxes of critical moments to buy for their family and friends? Sure. So the, the books on Amazon, um, we uh, do an exclusive deal with them. So that's kind of cool to sort of sell on Amazon. Everybody goes to Amazon now yeah. um, that's there. Um, our website is just kith, K-I-T-H dot C-O. Pretty active on LinkedIn. I try to write some an article once a week on LinkedIn and then relatively active on Twitter. And that's just B, at B Coletti. Uh, C-O-L-E-T-T-I. But the Kith website's the easiest and best way to find us and to find the book. And you've been um, working your way through the Podcast Nation, too. You've yeah. been on some pretty pretty interesting podcasts so people can find other Yeah, there's some really cool podcasts ranging from topics on leadership and how leaders show up during a crisis. Um, really sort of talking about the personal the inside and the outside affect on that. And uh, the one quote that I've been using a lot on some of these podcasts is, is Wayne Dyer, who's kind of this sort of guru of of, of social or personal transformation says, we can't always control what goes on in the outside, but we can control what happens on the inside. And so your immediate thought is to internal communications, but no, Dwyer's talking about the person and what can leaders do on the inside to help get through this. And it's the humanization of the corporation. Fascinating. Uh, so yeah, it's great stuff. Great Very conversations. Good. Well, congratulations on the book. It's terrific. I've read it twice. You gave me two copies and I've dog-eared one to death. So I'm going to need a third, and I hope that doesn't cost me too much. Um, I've also quoted you a few times in Breaking Bad News, and I probably ought to tell you what those are one of these days. You should let me know that. And I look, and I look forward to your book because, as we said <laughs> earlier, is that I do not believe that my thoughts are the last and best thoughts on, on this construct. And I am excited to see how you've taken that and evolved it and improved it and made it better. Um, and I think that's what the future is going to hold. And that's how we all need to sort of work together to make the marketplace better because we care about these clients. We, we do. care about we the care people about we serve. Yeah. Well, I think the fun part when we compare and contrast our books is I'm, a, I'm focused on a very short term 90 minutes of hell that a brand has to go through. You've done an amazing uh, piece of work here that helps a brand understand 
there's so much more to come after an incident. And so um, short term, long term, that's a great marriage. And that's why this was a great podcast. Absolutely. And you're a great leader. So thanks for doing this. Bill, thank you for being on Breaking Bad News. I think we're, um, we've probably set a record for our longest podcast, but it was well worth the time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Breaking Bad News. Subscribe and learn more at apronfoodpr.com. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. It really helps.